For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places and the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Last summer, this church gave me a gift, and I went on sabbatical. Now, as I rested, I also focused on a particular topic of study. I wanted to study evangelism in post-Christian cultures. When you talk about post-Christian cultures, we're talking about those cities and places in our world that were once dominated by Christianity, but whose churches are now empty where people have abandoned the faith. And so I began by talking to pastors and leaders in the United Kingdom, in England, in Scotland. I talked to pastors from New York and in Seattle and Los Angeles, asking them, interviewing them, helping to understand how do we share the gospel in a post-Christian world. I'll never forget sitting on the patio of a restaurant in Seattle, Washington, gathered together with pastors from all over North America, and a leader from New York City looked at me. And as I asked him my questions, trying to understand evangelism in a post-Christian world, he looked at me with a refreshing honesty that can only come from the Northeast. And he said, I don't think we can help you. And here I was, I'd traveled all this way to learn how to do evangelism in a post-Christian society, and 
As I wiped the surprised look off my face, I asked him why. Why can't you help me? And what he said next should have been obvious to me, but it changed the course of my sabbatical and perhaps even my ministry. He said, Dallas is not New York City. It's not Seattle. It's not Los Angeles. It's not the United Kingdom. See, Dallas is not a post-Christian culture. Dallas is culturally Christian. Now, when I say that Dallas is culturally Christian, I'm not saying that every person in Dallas is a Christian. We all know that that's not true. Nor am I saying that we don't interact with unbelief and post-Christianity on a daily basis. All you really need is a phone to do that. What I am saying is that here in Dallas, Texas, Christianity is still the cultural norm. It's what we do. That there are people in our city that affiliate with Christianity more out of a sense of heritage and out of what they inherited, out of a sense of duty, of values or ethics or morality, or out of a sense of a conservative worldview, rather than a genuine conversion to become followers of Jesus Christ. There's an old saying, you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. Why do we say that? Because as hard as we try to leave our culture and our upbringing behind, it still infects us, doesn't it? And this has been true for the history of humanity, that the way that we are raised... The culture around us, as hard as we try to push against us, it's still, it's part of us, and it's part of who we are. And so ever since the beginning, the people of God have found themselves tempted to return to the lives that they've left behind. During the Exodus, the Israelites, they were tempted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. The letter to the Hebrews is written to a church who is tempted to go back to first century Judaism, to abandon Christianity and to go back to what they've been brought up with, the Jewish faith. And we, as 21st century Americans in the buckle of the Bible belt, we're tempted to go back to. We're tempted to go back, not to slavery in Egypt, not to first century Judaism, we're tempted to go back to cultural Christianity. And the real danger is sometimes we don't know how to tell the difference. This morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 7 and 8, we're getting to the heart of this sermon. And this morning, the message that the preacher has for us is simple, but it's incredibly important. It's a message that we need to hear. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. If you find yourself this morning wondering about your own Christian walk, your own Christian faith, or perhaps your own skepticism, and you're wondering, is, 
is it any better than this? Is there more to life than this? Is there more to Christianity than this? I want you to hear the message that the preacher of Hebrews has. Jesus is better. The first way that he's better is this. Jesus is a better pastor. I want you to look with me. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. Before you get there, I want to connect a little bit to what we talked about last week. Last week, we saw that we live in a world where there's little we can be sure of, but we can be sure of this, that Jesus Christ is our anchor. But we stopped short at why. Why can we be confident in Jesus as our anchor, as a sure foundation? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us at the end of chapter 6, he tells us that we have the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, those of you who were this last week and you saw that we stopped short there, you wondered, are we ever going to talk about Melchizedek? We've seen his name pop up time and time again. And this morning, we're going to talk about Melchizedek. Author of Hebrews dives right in, Hebrews 7, verse 1. He tells us that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, right out of the gate, he, he gives us a couple things that I think we have to understand about who Melchizedek was and why he matters for our understanding of Jesus. First, we need to know that Melchizedek was a king. He was a king. And the author of Hebrews tells us that the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's what the name means in Hebrew. But he also had a title, King of Salem, which means King of Peace. In other words, Melchizedek was a king. He was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Not only that, but the author of Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek met Abraham. It's one of the few places in the Bible where we hear Melchizedek's name mentioned. It's Genesis chapter 14. And there we're told that Melchizedek met Abraham and he blessed Abraham. And not only that, but Abraham responded by giving Melchizedek a tithe. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is doing to his Jewish audience, his Jewish Christian audience, is he's reminding them that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That would have been a stunning reminder. But not only was Melchizedek a king, he was also a priest. Again, look at verse 1. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And what we will see is that Melchizedek's priesthood was altogether different than the priesthood of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Hebrews 7, verse 11. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Author of Hebrews says, Now if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now this is where I think the book of Hebrews becomes very challenging for us. 
challenging because you and I, at least most of us, not all of us, we're not Jewish. We weren't raised steeped in the Old Testament, and we weren't raised in the first century, the context that this letter was written. And so as we hear about the Levitical priesthood, and we hear about the order of Aaron, and we hear that Melchizedek is different, our eyes kind of glaze over. We start to kind of check out. We wonder, what on earth does this have to do with me? But what I want you to see this morning, friends, is that there is nothing new under the sun. And these first century hearers of this letter had a propensity to go back to man-centered religion. And that's what they were doing. That's what they're doing with first century Judaism, with the priesthood. The priesthood was built, built upon the order of Aaron. In other words, every single priest could trace their lineage back to Aaron. And their function was to be this conduit where the people of God would look to the priesthood in order to get to God himself. That was their function. The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, Melchizedek was a different priesthood. First of all, he couldn't trace his lineage back to Aaron. He wasn't a priest by genealogy. He was a priest by his character. And what is more, his function as a priest was different than the priesthood in first century Judaism. He wasn't just a priest. He was a priest king. He was called to a royal priesthood, a priesthood with the authority of God. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Why do we need to know who Melchizedek was in order to understand who Jesus is? Author of Hebrews tells us in verse three, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. This verse, as mysterious as it is, has led people to think that maybe Melchizedek was an angel or some kind of spirit, but I think that's reading much too far into it. I think Melchizedek was a historical person, and the fact that he didn't have a genealogy that we know of says more about his priesthood than it does about his heritage. It also tells us about the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is a high priest unlike any other. He's not a priest by heritage or genealogy tracing his ancestry back to Aaron, but the priesthood of Jesus is like Melchizedek's in that it can be traced to God himself. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he is a priest of the most high God, a royal priest whom God has sent to show us himself. The original hearers of this letter were tempted to go back to the Old Testament priesthood. They were tempted to go back to first century Judaism and after all they had seen God do through Jesus, you have to wonder why. Well, as they faced persecution, as they begin to question their faith and wonder, is any of this worth it? They thought, well, let's just go back to what we've always known. And you and I are no different. 
we have the tendency to go back to the kind of religion that we can see tangibly, the kind of things that we think can help us get to God that we can control. That's what they were doing in the first century, going back to first century Judaism, going back to the sacrificial system. That's what you and I do today. You and I adore theologians. We adore Christian thought leaders. We even have this thing today in our culture called celebrity pastors. How is that a thing? The idea of Christian celebrity, celebrity pastors who we look to to be our connection to God. And so we go through life forming a vicarious spirituality. What do I mean by that? It means that we don't have a connection to Jesus for ourselves. We let somebody else do that. We outsource it to some theologian or pastor that we look up to and we say, you meet with Jesus, you tell me what that's like, and I will live vicariously through you. And so we worship these pastors and we put them on a pedestal and it becomes dangerous not only for us as a church, but it becomes dangerous for them. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know this morning that Jesus is a much better pastor than I can ever be. He's a much better pastor than any of our pastors here. And yes, he's a much better pastor than John Piper or Matt Chandler or Tim Keller or Jonathan Edwards or John Calvin. Jesus is a better pastor. And so I ask you in our culturally Christian culture, do you know Jesus for yourself? Do you know what it means to abide with him, to walk with him, to see him as your great high priest, as your shepherd, to see him as your pastor? You see, because I think something happens when we put pastors on pedestals. Not only do we fail to see Jesus for who he truly is, but we fail to see ourselves for who we truly are. You see, just like Jesus is a royal priest, if you're wondering if there's anything better than cultural Christianity out there, do you know that you have now been called to a royal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek? Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been called not to just be a Christian consumer, but you are called to be a royal priesthood. This morning, if Jesus Christ has redeemed you, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that makes you a prince or a princess and a priest in the kingdom of God. And he has gifted and called you to be his ambassadors, to proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why one of my favorite things about our church is in our bulletin every once in a while when we have the room. It's when we have the room to list all of the pastors and elders who lead our church. It's not in a bulletin this Sunday, but I challenge you to look at your bulletin each Sunday and look for it. 
at the top of the page, before we list the pastors here, before we list the elders, we list the ministers. Do you know who we define ministers are here at Park City's Presbyterian Church? These are the ministers of this church. The members of this church family who in serving their Savior and Lord Jesus Christ extend his kingdom and Dallas into the world. Who are the ministers of PCPC? It's you. It's you. Called to be royal priests, extending his kingdom with Jesus as your head pastor, going before you as the one who is our great high priest. But not only is Jesus a better pastor, I want you to know that Jesus is a better savior. The author of Hebrews goes on in chapter 7 and verse 22, and he says that all of this, this idea of Jesus being like Melchizedek, well, that makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. In other words, that Jesus is able to guarantee something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And what is his guarantee? It's his own life. Verse 23, he tells us that the former priests were many in number, but because they were prevented by death from continuing in office... Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. Now, there's much more that we will say about the sacrificial system in a few weeks. I just want to mention a couple things briefly this morning. The first is that the author of Hebrews wants us to see that the sacrificial system, the idea of priests making animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of the sins of the people, that practice in the first century, first century Judaism, and up until that point, that practice is imperfect. It's flawed and it's imperfect because it's centered on imperfect people. And so the preacher of Hebrews is saying, look, the priesthood, they were human beings, they were imperfect. First of all, they were limited, they died. But Jesus is a priest who did not die. He rose again and he now lives to intercede for you and for me. That makes his priesthood better but it also makes the salvation that he offers better. Not only were the priests imperfect and human because they died, but every priest throughout history, and including pastors today, were sinners. And back then, the priests were sinners. And so before they could make atonement and an offering for the sins of the people, they had to first make a sacrifice for themselves. And so daily, continually, they were having to do this because the sins never stopped. Sacrifices would happen, people would keep sinning. So more sacrifices would be offered and more sins would occur. And so more sacrifices would need to happen and the people just went on sinning and sinning and sinning. And you have this imperfect, flawed system that does not have the power to save to the uttermost. It offered a momentary and half-hearted salvation. This is the author of Hebrews Point. Verse 25, he says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He goes on and says that Verse 27, Jesus had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Why? Because he offered a sacrifice once and for all and offering himself.
Jesus is a much better savior than man-centered religion can ever be. We have a tendency of making things man-centered, do we not? A great theologian named B.B. Warfield recognized this in our own religion of Christianity over 100 years ago. 1912, B.B. Warfield wrote a journal article for the Harvard Theological Review. Its title was Christless Christianity. In this journal article, B.B. Warfield was looking at the culture of his day 100 years ago, and he was recognizing that Christianity was becoming a religion that was man-centered. It was becoming a religion that even though it was called Christianity, it was straying away from Jesus Christ. And you think, well, how could that happen? How could Christianity become Christless? Christianity becomes Christless when it's no longer centered on the cross of Jesus Christ. And you think, well, how, how could that happen? How could Christian practice wander away from the cross? I want us to be honest with ourselves this morning. I think we do it every single day. I think if we're not careful, we can even do it on a Sunday morning. It's easy to take the blessings of God, the things that are designed to point us to Jesus and stop short of the cross, to be distracted on what we think about them or what we think our role is in them. And we find ourselves stopping short at the foot of the cross. And so as you and I enter a sanctuary like this this morning and we see the beauty around us in these stained glass windows, and we experience this gift of music that we have, for those of you who are encouraged by it, do you know that Jesus is better? As beautiful as this music is, do you know that Jesus is better? Music is amazing, but it cannot save you. Others of you this morning, you come into a sanctuary like this and it reminds you of kind of this cold and archaic Christianity that you were brought up with and this music with an organ, you're not sure what to do with it and you're wondering where's, where's the rock music, right? Isn't that what we do now? And can I tell you that Jesus is better? He's a much better savior. We find ourselves thinking that Christianity is about doing the right thing saying the right thing, having the right people around us and having enough Christian activity. Can I tell you that Jesus is a much better savior than saying the right things or doing the right things? You cannot work your way to God. When Christianity becomes Christless, it becomes just like every religion in the world today. Every religion has one purpose to make a way for us to get to God. Genuine Christianity is the exact opposite. It's the story about how God has made his way to us. And the person of Jesus Christ, he died for you, he rose for you so that your sins would be forgiven to the uttermost. He is a better savior. And finally, where we'll end this morning, Jesus fulfills a better promise. We're told in Hebrews 8, verse 6, 
that Jesus has obtained a ministry that's much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is a mediator. He is the fulfiller of a better promise. What better promise is that? The author of Hebrews goes on at the end of chapter 8 to quote Jeremiah 31 verbatim. It's the new covenant, a new and better promise from God that only Jesus has fulfilled. The new covenant says this, Jeremiah 31, verse 33. God says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall no longer teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus fulfilled the promises of the new covenant, new and better promises, by fulfilling the demands of the old covenant, by giving his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. And these promises are much better than any promise that cultural Christianity could ever give us. 2005, a sociologist named Christian Smith studied faith among adolescents in our country. And what they discovered was a pretty organized system of thought that they described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. There is not a better description of the promises of cultural Christianity. It's moralistic. It promises that if you will just do the right thing and be nice and good and fair to one another, then God will love you. It's therapeutic. It promises that the central goal of life is to be happy. And that if you will give enough to God, then he will make your life happier. It's deistic in the sense that God is not interested in us personally, but he's out there for you whenever you need him. Just call on him and he'll show up. And just like a genie in a bottle, he'll go back to where he came from. Jesus has fulfilled a better promise. The promises of Jesus are not moralism, it's forgiveness. I'll forgive your sin, I'll remember your iniquity no more. Promises of Jesus are not therapy, it's transformation. I will write my law upon your heart. I don't want you to feel better, Jesus says, I want you to be better. Promises of Jesus are not about deism, it's about abiding with God. Jesus Christ has invited you and I this morning to hear the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he's saying, come to me. The great royal high priest who laid his life down for you and for me, that we too might be royal priests called to extend his kingdom to Dallas and to the world. Let me pray, Father in heaven, we confess that these things are hard for us to see. When we talk about our own culture, we're so wrapped up in it, me at the front of the line. It's hard for us to see what it truly means sometimes to be followers of Jesus. And so we pray that we would see that you, Jesus Christ, are better. And as we sing now and worship you, 
may in doing so in our hearts declare that you are better. And Father, we pray as we go from here that you would call us into the great story of the royal priesthood, that we might be your ambassadors, bringing your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven to Dallas and to the world until you come again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.